I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The only way into this podcast is a long leap, headfirst, into post-colonial French fiction, of all things, and a novel titled The Most Secret Memory of Men. Leap with me, listeners. There's not a chance you'll be disappointed. Our guest is the toast of literary Paris, the first novelist from sub-Saharan Africa to win France's highest book prize, the Goncourt, Mohamed Bougar Sarr. Welcome to the States. Thank you, Chris. I feel I almost know you because the first thing we feel in your magical book is you. The doctor's son from Dakar in Senegal, eldest of seven sons, military school, advanced education in France, and now, of course, the Goncourt. At the start of your book, we're at play in a Parisian nest of artists and writers, hustlers and searchers, men, women, out of France's one-time colonies, Senegal, Mali, Ivory Coast. They're watching the World Cup, they're smoking weed, they're making love, but they're thinking about literature. This is our life, yes, one writer says, but we also talk about it, because talking about it keeps it alive, and as long as it's alive, our lives, even if they're pointless, even if they're tragically comical and insignificant, won't be completely wasted. We have to behave as if literature were the most important thing on earth. Sounds like you, talking. Your energy, your ambition, your confidence, no matter what. Locate the feeling inside this young hotshot's head. The sense of a mad gamble. The sacrifice that artists make and will make of their lives, if need be, before it's over. Yes. Thank you, Chris, for this wonderful um, introduction and presentation. I guess this sounds a little bit romantic, no? <laughs> but in a sense, romanticism is at heart of literature, not as a literary movement or a period, an artistic period. It just means that uh, you are a human being and you are facing what literature has to offer. And what literature has to offer is always a mix between beauty and pity, between a fight and at the same time the feeling that there is no possible fight uh, against literature or with literature. It's that mix which creates the energy and it's that energy which innerves the group, these uh, nests of young African and very pedantic, arrogant, but at the same time very lovely uh, young writers. The literature you write of has a capital L. It is a gigantic global mass of incredible beauty and authority, and it's movable, and it's changing, and it's sort of open, sort of closed. It's hard to tell that's what the book is about. But these friends of Diegan, the narrator, he wonders at some point, what is the link between us, between in this group? I think it's he who says, perhaps it's the silent realization that we were unhappy and unmoored Africans in Europe, even if we pretended to be at home wherever we were. Or perhaps the only thing that links us is the certainty or hope that it might all end in an orgy one day. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the secret hope of every literary group, in a way. Uh, 
But their hope, their deep hope is to find eventually a home in literature. But when you say my home is literature, it's at the same time like a dream, but it can be hell because you know literature is not always a home. I mean for everyone. Sometimes it rejects you or it challenges you. I mean it's not always a beautiful home or a peaceful mm. home. And when you are a young African writer living in France, knowing that you bury a heavy history, which you didn't directly experience, but which is at the same time your history and you know it living in France. Mm. Of course, you are looking for a home. And that home in the society isn't always open. And that's why you try to find it in other places, other spaces, in friendships and in books, maybe. But it doesn't always work. And you are just a wanderer, in a way. The irony, as you say, or well, the tragedy in the story is that literature and writing begins in solitude and it ends in solitude. Yes. And when you get to the end, you don't necessarily know where it is you've arrived. Yes. Yes. That's why I use this geometrical figure of the labyrinth. I think that every book, every great book is a labyrinth. You just walk in and you wonder, but it's not a prison, it's not a sad walk. You are looking for something, not mm. necessarily the exit. I think that in every labyrinth, the main goal is not the exit but the center and hmm. looking for the center in the labyrinth of literature is looking somehow a truth our personal truth our individual truth and it's a, a journey or a quest that you have to do alone hmm. in a way but the solitude or the loneliness of literature is at the same time a very paradoxical one Because you know that in the labyrinth you have ghosts, you have the shadow of the minotaur somewhere, you have uh, voices of the past mm. uh, somewhere, and you have your own dream walking alongside. But basically, writing a book or reading a book is going from solitude to solitude. <laughs> and in the two solitude, between the two oh. solitude, there is, yeah, maybe some adventures and beautiful adventures, yeah. There's also this question, you deal a lot with it in your book, of who owns literature? Mm -hmm. Also, who gets into the game? Who wins? What's the test of making it, so to speak? It's kind of amazing that Marcel Proust won the Goncourt mm -hmm. in 1919, and you are crowned with the same great prize almost exactly a hundred years later for the most secret memory of men. I hear a lot of Proust in your book. Mm. His giant, what, 2,000 pages begins with a little boy trying to go to sleep, mm. wishing his mum would come up and give him a kiss. Mm. goes on for 50 pages. The whole thing goes on for 2,000 pages. And it, at the end, it's all about, could I be a writer? Mm. Will I be a writer? Mm. And 2,000 pages later, he says, well, I guess I was a writer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that in your travel, too. In a way, in a way, uh, Jegan is not the narrator of uh, the La Recherche du Temps Perdu, but he has the same desire 
of course, to become mm. a writer. At the end of uh, La Recherche du Temps Perdu, the narrator, yeah, you said it, realized that he is a writer in a way, or he will write the book we just read. But the difference between him and Jegan is that at the end of uh, the, the most secret memory of men, I'm not sure that we know if Jegan will be one day a writer. He doesn't know himself because uncertainty is part of his journey. He wants literature to tell him a secret and literature remains desperately silent. That's how, in a way, the book ends. But no one knows myself. I don't know myself. And I hope <laughs> that Jegan uh, will be one day a writer. I'm very looking forward to reading him uh, <laughs> one day. Jegan well, has already, in your person, uh, won the Goncourt. And it must be an incredible thrill to share a prize with Marcel Proust. Yeah, it's a great, great honor. The history of the, the Goncourt is just a long list of so much great, great writers. Some of them are, of course, forgotten. But, uh, yeah, Marcel Proust is maybe the one people know the, the most and for very good uh, reasons. I won the Goncourt almost a century after Proust and exactly a century after René Maron. And René Maron was the first black man mm. to win the Prix Goncourt. And this year, in 1921, there was an uproar after he won the Goncourt because the book he wrote, Batwala, mm. was a very harsh and severe critique of decolonization. And he was a colonial agent himself. Of course, people reproached him mm. to ruin the, the chair uh, where he was himself sat. So, in a way, the position of René Maron is very close to the position of Yambo Logem, uh, the Malian author who inspired the book, the character of Eliman. Batwala is very close to Bound to Violence, Yambo Ologem's book, uh, half a century later. Yeah, we'll come later. back to Yambo Ologem because he's the real person on which you've built your fiction, but he was a real man who yeah. wrote a fantastic book, was celebrated in France until somebody decided, no, 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 this is something we don't like here. He's borrowing too much from other writers and, and he was stripped of mm. all his glory. We'll come back to him yeah. in the person of your... Eliman, who plays that role in your book. First, I just wanted to say there's a wonderful exchange early in your book between the narrator and his Polish roommate yeah. in Paris, your man Diegan, who sounds so much like you. He confesses what no African writer established in France will admit, that behind the rebel pose, the dream is to get into the French literary world. He says it's our shameful secret but it's also the glory we fantasize about. And his roommate says, just remember and watch out, France will end up crowning one of you to ease its bourgeois conscience, but deep down, believe me, you are and will remain foreigners, whatever the merit of your writing. Mm. You're not from here. They'll place a medal around your neck, whomever they want, but if they put it around your neck, it's to hang you. Mm. If they don't, Begging for it with tears streaming down your face won't change anything. Nothing, says this Polish translator, nothing is universal except hell. Burn the medals and the hands holding them. Rip off the last tatters of the colonial era and expect nothing. Set the old ideas ablaze. 
down to the embers, to the ashes, to the death, right with gasoline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this excerpt points out just one of the several ambiguities of writing from a margin. And when you are on a margin and looking for the center, of course, you have a very, very difficult position because you know that you want to be recognized in a way by the center because you know that the center has the power mm. and the power can give you or your book another fate, another destiny. But you know that the path to the center, the path to recognition is difficult yeah. and you can lose your soul right. trying to get there because there are so much compromises possible. There are sometimes betrayals possible. And can you face that? And can you survive this very difficult fight with the central power? It's a question that uh, yeah. you have to bear in mind when you are, for instance, an African writer, living, writing in a kind of a periphery, a periphery who surrounds yeah, yeah. And of course you're trying the establishment. To, yeah. You're trying to move the center, too. You're trying to move that giant yeah. mountain of... Yeah, of literature. and every means are good means. You can just, <laughs> yeah, criticize, uh, use irony, use every weapon that literature can offer. On the subject of literature, I just want to note also that there is an erotic pulse. There's a lot of sex, a lot of laughter, a lot of religion, a lot of everything mm-hmm. in your book. But specifically, the pulse of Eros is so fascinating, and I want to just read a little bit of it, in which Diegan, I think of him as you, is writing like this. He says, Literature appeared to me in the guise of a woman of terrifying beauty. I told her in a stammer that I had been looking for her. She laughed cruelly and said she didn't belong to anyone. I set off after her, full of determination and arrogance. I'm going to catch you. I'm going to sit you on my knee. I'm going to force you to look me in the eye. I'm going to be a writer. But then that terrible moment always comes en route in the middle of the night, when a voice rings out and strikes like lightning and it reveals to you or reminds you that desire isn't enough, that talent isn't enough, that ambition isn't enough, that being a good writer isn't enough, that being well-read isn't enough, that being famous isn't enough, that being highly cultured isn't enough, that being wise isn't enough, that commitment isn't enough, that patience isn't enough, that getting drunk off pure life isn't enough that retreating from life isn't enough, that believing in your dreams isn't enough, that dissecting reality isn't enough, that intelligence isn't enough, that stirring hearts isn't enough, that strategy isn't enough, that communication isn't enough, that even having something to say isn't enough, nor is working tirelessly enough. And the voice also says that all of that might be and often is a condition an advantage, an attribute, a strength, of course. But then the voice adds that in essence, none of those qualities are ever enough when it's a question of literature because writing always demands something else, something else, something else. Thank you for your wonderful reading. I want to say how happy I was to see how Lara Vergneau, the translator of the book uh, managed to reproduce the rhythms of some parts of the book. And this this excerpt specifically, 
she is a very good translator, and, and I wanted to mention. Her name. <laughs> she had very good material to work with. Yeah, <laughs> this is something else, of course, is our obsession, and the obsession is not only for writer or creator, but also as readers. There is something else we are looking for. We are seeking for something, and I think this is part of the energy of writing and reading. We are looking for something else or someone hmm. else. And I think that every time we write or every time we read, we do it for someone or something. But the question is to discover who is that something or who is that someone. And the only way to discover it is to continue reading or writing, <laughs> in my opinion. This excerpt, the beginning, this image, I will set you on my knee. Mm. Or I'm, I'm coming for you. Come from a poem by Arthur Rimbaud, and Rimbaud wrote. I don't, I don't know how to translate it, but the idea is that one. I set beauty on my knee, and I found it bitter, mm. some bitterness in in beauty. Does that answer the question of something else? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it could be the answer. I mean, bitterness or disappointment can be at the end of the road or uh. at the center of the labyrinth and then maybe you wonder or you realize that the most important part is just the journey the quest and not uh, necessarily the end the quest so glad you mentioned it this book is a kind of roadshow a man going all over the world argentina africa paris to find a man named Eleman. The story you've invented is based on that real one, about a writer who appeared out of Africa with an astonishing book in the late 1930s, infinitely, mysteriously enchanting about everything and nothing. It won ecstatic reviews in Paris, as you're telling the story again in a different era, until it was pointed out that he had leaned, the author had leaned on, maybe lifted from African mythology and a variety of other European and American writers. The charge was plagiarism, a deadly charge, and he was punished severely for it with banishment. His books were mostly destroyed. Eleman himself completely disappeared, except that for the readers who could find it, his great book lived on as much more than a masterpiece. In your coterie of artists and writers to the present day, that book, which he called The Labyrinth of Inhumanity, is a holy vessel passed hand to hand. It becomes both cathedral and arena, you write, for a young generation of artists jousting over perfection. One of that circle, Siga, says, Eleman is a ghost. She's a sort of den mother to the writer's coterie. She says, you don't meet Eleman. He appears to you. He goes through you. He turns your bones to ice and burns your skin. A living illusion. I felt his breath on the back of my neck, the breath rising from among the dead. Let's talk about that search. Yeah. What are we looking for? Um, we can say, basically, that we are looking for the great writer, the great author, uh, the great man. But it's a literal reading. Deeply, I think that every writer here is looking for a secret Eliman could tell him or her. I think mm. that Eliman is just 
the metaphor of what we are looking for when we write or read simply mm. that and that's why in the book the quest is every character is looking for him in a way every voice is telling some story mm. about Eliman but when you hear what the voices are telling you just realize that every voice is talking about itself in a way yeah. in that sense Eliman is a mirror and i usually uh, have this image of the broken glass Eliman is a broken glass mm. we can't hold the whole image but every character hold a piece of the glass and when you look at the piece of the, the broken glass of course you see a part of Eliman a mysterious part an mm. enigmatic part and you say where is the, the the rest of the mirror but saying that you see yourself just because Eliman represent that in the same time mm. but it starts like a bildungsroman or detective a, a literary mystery uh with of course not a a dead body but a mm. vanished a missing uh, writer but digging in the story you realize that maybe it's a a metaphysical quest mm. it's a poetic quest a very physical quest of course uh, in geography through history of course but i think that deep deep inside it's a metaphysical quest Eliman is a man who's reached a pinnacle of success and then been dashed, yeah. of course. So, cautionary figure. There's so many details about him, we can't solve them all. But, for example, it turns out that people who had reviewed his book, written about it, for or against, an astonishing number of them had killed themselves. Yeah. Do we know what that means? Killed themselves or were killed yeah. by some uh, magic by Eliman. We don't yeah, know. Somebody thought he had the black magic. Yeah, we don't know. It's a part of Eliman's mystery or Eliman's secret. We don't know if the fact of meeting him is already a sign of the end, you know, <laughs> of the catastrophe or something apocalyptic. Yeah, when you meet him, you just faced an idea of the ambiguity of what is greatness in literature in a way. We don't know. We get to the end with Eliman finally. It turns out he lived to 102 in various hiding places, Argentina, Paris, back to his village at the end in Senegal. He's been working all this time on volume two or another great book, but he despairs. But we learn that he had a kind of double identity. In his conception, twin brothers were madly in love with the same woman, and it's not quite clear to anybody, even the mother, who was the father of this man. And oddly enough, one of the two men was a sort of Frenchified intellectual who went to French schools and ended up serving with French troops in World War One, And the other was an African fisherman who never left the village, a much more native, nativist kind of character. And so there's Eliman in a certain way, the African and the, the French... Yeah. Rockstar. Yeah, yeah, he has both dimensions and navigates between them. And Eliman's question or Eliman's secret could be uh, that one. Where does he belong? Mm. I don't know, where mm. is his real place? The African tradition, the French culture, literature, but what does it mean? Mm. Uh, we'd never know. And 
somehow it's a uh, one key of his journey around the world that's yeah. why he left his village africa went to europe france goes through the 90s published something and uh, goes through a scandal uh, of plagiarism a literary scandal went to argentina and latin america and then come back and yeah but maybe he's just looking for his true identity yeah. and maybe his true identity is just all of this and is just at the same time he is in a way the incarnation of the two brothers the twins yes. the twins are in one man and this man is eventually eliman the wisdom or the lesson to be over simple but that comes out of this search for eliman i think is first the torture of being a great writer mm-hmm. but also the fraud that was built into that charge of plagiarism mm-hmm. against him and against ulagem the real life man yeah. too the wisdom of long hindsight and of your novel i think is that eliman was borrowing from classical literature of europe but it was not theft it was not plunder it was much more like homage or mm. appreciation mm. a sort of gesture toward assimilation in that evolving landscape yeah. of civilization which is also i have to say the logic behind what we call this podcast open source the idea that ideas musical phrases even literary phrases are nobody owns them in the end mm. they're the common culture and mm. we don't copyright our work in that way is that a fair statement of yeah when i was a child i used to listen to tales uh, my yeah. grandmother used to tell me tales several multiple tales i was a tale listener and one thing that i learned from that time is that a tale doesn't belong to anyone the tale Thank doesn't you. belong to anyone of course the one who are telling the tale is responsible for the tale at that moment but at the same time you know that it's just a personal interpretation of a very ancient narrative and no one owns that narrative it is the difference i make between originality and singularity mm. i don't believe in originality in a way in mm. the field of literature but i believe in singularity the personal way of expressing an ancient theme or an ancient existential question what eliman faces in the book is that question is he allowed to just borrow or just make tribute to the literary canon of the whole world yes being an african or not it's the question or it can be the question for every writer in a way i mean when you write what do you do with your influences with the library right. the big and heavy and sometimes terrifying library that you have and you know that you come from that library directly because you became a writer because you are a reader and you remain a reader even when you write what do you do with your influences with what you read what you saw what you heard and every piece of art which is just in you like another blood another complex network of blood it means something 
which gives you the vitality to create. What do you do with that? Wologam did, and he was accused of plagiarism with a racist and clearly violent dimension and insulting and right. very, yeah, very difficult tack. And that's, that's why he is the true figure behind Eliman. I was going to say, it's a very imperialist sort of exclusion yeah. subject people with all sorts of bad implications about it. But it also comes back to this question of where literature is moving today in a world culture. A vital question. Funny thing, last Sunday's New York Times had a special section, a news section, about Africa, which I thought bore precisely on this point. The headline was, Old World Young Africa. It was really about the population explosion in Africa today. When the rest of the world is turning gray and shrinking, mm. Africa will double its population by 2050. Yeah. And something like a third of all the young people, say under 25, in the world mm. will live in Africa. Yeah. <laughs> a matter of huge economic and political, but cultural consequence. Mm. And it's so right or so fitting the moment that you are a sort of milestone here of black consciousness, trained also in France, yeah. setting the high watermark. Your prize is sort of setting a new standard. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I hope that the prize will be an important step for the future, but not as a, an individual reward, just for the collective dimension it can have in history, considering the point where Africa is and the future of the continent. And I think that the future, culturally, politically, economically, is going there in Africa. But it also means that wars are going there, desires are going there, predators are going there, and what culture can do in that context to give, at the same time, hope and courage to Africans and to tell to other people what is this continent and what is the history of this continent, yeah. really. Where this continent come from is important. And I hope it will be one of the significations of this Goncourt for the generations to come. I was going to ask, what would you like it to do? In the novel, in your novel, Diagon gets to Senegal and there's a certain political turmoil on the streets and in the air and somebody asks him, what the hell are you doing for this hmm. cause? And um, Diagon, your guy in the book, said, I, he really doesn't know. What would your wildest hope be? Or what would you, where would you want to commit yourself? Hmm... The political dimension of books, and specifically of novels, doesn't appear immediately. Sometimes it takes times to appear. Mm. For instance, Bound to Violence by Wologems create a scandal. And that's just been made available anew. Yeah, Bound to Violence is republished by our dear <laughs> Judith Gurevich in other press. Bound to Violence in 1968 creates a scandal because it was accused not only of plagiarism but of betrayal 
Wolligam was considered as a, um, the man who attacks his own culture, his mm. own continent, his own culture uh, and country. But it took times, years to realize that in a way he was absolutely right. It's necessary to have spaces like that in culture and in a library, in literature or in the literature of some part of a continent. It just means that my own book, of course, are very strong commitment and statements, political statements, but it can take times and years for many people to, to see what mm. I tried to do. And this is the, in a way, the commitment, the deep commitment of literature. Sometimes it can be very immediate. I mean, it published and the sense appears clearly. Mm. But books has always layers and layers and layers and it can take time. I think that it's necessary in Senegalese society, for example, to have writers, to have books, contemporary books, uh, which deals with our contemporary situation, political situation. And it's important that socially writers like me are recognized as artists, but at the same time as social speakers, mm. in a way. And in that way, I, I hope the most secret memory of men, but also my previous books, opens a discussion, a conversation with this society. Yeah, we'd love to be part of it. Uh, send us your writers and send us a, a reading list. <laughs> and I mean it. This matter of who was Eliman, who was this elusive figure, goes right to the end of your novel. This guy, Musimboa, who's actually Congolese, and he goes back to the Congo, but he stays very much in touch with Diegan in their searches in Africa, and he writes to Diegan toward the end, who was Eliman really? I don't know where your search has taken you these past few weeks, but I see one possible answer. Eliman was the person or thing we mustn't become and that we are slowly becoming. He was a warning that fell on deaf ears. That warning told us African writers, invent your own tradition. Establish your literary history, discover your own forms, test them in your spaces, nourish your deepest imagination, have a land of your own, for it's only there that you'll exist, not only for yourselves, but also for others. Who was Eliman really? The most accomplished and most tragic project of colonization. He was its most dazzling success, more so than the paved roads, the hospitals, the Sunday schools, more so than the purebred and pure-blood Gaul, but Eliman also symbolized what the innate horror of that colonization has destroyed within the peoples subjected to it. Eliman wanted to become white, and he was reminded that not only was he not, but that he never would be, despite all his talent. He brandished every card of whiteness, culturally at least. These were simply used as reminders of his negritude. Maybe he understood Europe better than the Europeans, but how did he end up? Anonymous? disappeared, erased. You know this. Colonization sows despair, death, and chaos among the colonized. But it also sows, and this is its most diabolical triumph, the desire to become one's destroyer. That was Eliman, 
all the sadness of alienation, hmm. the desire to become one's destroyer. Yeah, we are in the the tension between Jigan and his friend Musimbwa. Yeah. The interpretation they have is very different from what Eliman is. In a way, Eliman could be considered as just a cultural project. I mean, the cultural effect of colonization. But he's not only that, and that's what Jigan answers uh, deep inside. He is not that because he returned to his roots, in a way. Mm. He come from Africa, went to France, and then and Argentina and all over the world, and then come back. It means something. But the question of this tension between Jigan and Musimwa is a question that a Senegalese writer, Sheikh Amidou Khan, asked in a famous book, one of the greatest books of Senegalese literature. The book is titled L'Aventure Ambiguë in French, The Ambiguous Adventure mm. in English. And the question is very simple. When you come from a colonized country back then, in the 19th century, what you lost when you leave your culture Does it worth what you gain? I mean, mm. what is the, the balance? What is the relation between what you lost and what you gain, what you obtain? And uh, depending on the answer you gave, you will just know what kind of person you are mm. now. Tensed between two cultures or two history or two tradition. The answer, uh, Musimboa's answer is very clear. When you leave, what you lose is higher than what you obtain, when you, mm. what you gain. And Jigan thinks the opposite, or thinks at least that you can find the right balance between what you leave and what you, what you find yeah, between cultures. Can I read the last words from Eliman in a letter to Jigan? He seems to have had this intuition that Degan or somebody like him would come come by in the end and get his last notes. He's apologizing for the fact that he didn't he didn't ever publish anything after that masterpiece, The Labyrinth of Inhumanity. I simply couldn't do it anymore. Hence my growing bitterness these last few years at any completed book. They reminded me of my powerlessness to finish my own. But then he says at the end, the very end, he says The sadness now growing inside me doesn't betray my emotion at completing my book, but at not completing it. I won't finish. I'm 102 years old, and I didn't have enough time. The future was too short. Thus it ends for every diviner, nostalgic for the days ahead. Thus it ends for the seer, melancholic for the future. But that melancholy can still be joyful. It all depends on you. I'm leaving. What consoles me as I prepare to step into the shadows is the idea that someone, you, whose name I don't know, but whose face is familiar, will read this book and perhaps draw something from it. I don't want to disappear completely. I want to leave this trace incomplete, though it may be. It's my life. <laughs> really? 
Good luck, Jagan. Good luck, Mbuga. Good luck, Jagan. Yeah, <laughs> good luck because it's a very heavy testament to have. Mm. A will, the last will of uh, Eliman's last will. Yeah, which seemed very paradoxical because through all the book, he disappears. He keep on disappearing every time. And at the end, he wants to, to let something, to let a book or to let, I don't know, a footprint. He is a ghost, a ghost, and he wants to let the footprint. Mm. Maybe I could just choose a, a ghost's footprint as a title. <laughs> uh, why not? But uh, yeah, and Jagan has to, to decide. Uh, what to do with that, that will, that last, yeah, ultimate will. Yes, hey, Bugarsar, it's such a pleasure to sit and talk with the literary mind at work, so to speak. But I wonder what does this sort of conversation with your readers and the world about literature do for you? This is a great, very difficult question. Um, I think that reading and discussing literature just brings a poetic reality to our world. What I mean is that when you take a character, not as a fictive creature, but as a real person, it just adds something poetic in the way you see problems of the world, in the way you see your own existential problems. And that's why I love talking about literature very seriously, I mean, just by taking characters or scenes or sentences as living things or living persons for my own problems. Because I believe that there are some solutions or some questions that come only from literature. A great, great writer, Austrian writer that I really love, Hermann Broch, once put it in very simple world. The Death of Virgil, right? The Death of Virgil, uh, yeah. This is his greatest book, in my opinion. He said once, there is something that only literature can discover in this world. And that's why literature exists, for a very precise reason, to give us some answers or some questions, which is always better of course, that only literature can discover and can find or can formulate. Journalism can't do that. Sociology can't. Politics can't. It only comes from there, from literature. And I think that's why we, I say we, it's we lovers of literature. We the passionate by literature, of literature, When we talk about literature, our hope is to discover that thing, that answer or that question. Because we know that the way literature or uh, characters were formulated is completely different. And that's why we love discussing. Because we know that experiences we have with one character, for example, the interpretation we have of one character is at the same time a different slightly different question that we add to uh, our own question or a slightly different answer that we add to our answers. And I think that's why, simply because literature holds a secret. 
and that's what we want to discover the secret. And that's why I love talking about books and yeah. An example of the kind of character that speaks to you in the middle of the night or walking down the street. I have so much character, I have so many characters. But uh, recently I had a conference about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Yes. So I don't know the name of the character of because the character has no name in the book. But at the end of the book, the very last sentence of this book, Invisible Man, is a light for me. His voice, I have his voice in my head. And this black man, this young black man, said in the basement where he is, because he ended up in a basement, in the darkness, not knowing, not seeing himself. But the other can see him and he no longer can see himself. And in the darkness, he says, who knows? Who knows if in frequency is too low, I'm not singing for you. Yes. This is yes. a very beautiful sentence by Ellison and a very beautiful parole by this man, this invisible man. Mm. Because he's just saying to every man or to every writer or reader, every person, that when you are doing something, in a way you are responsible for the whole humanity. When you are a writer and when you write a sentence, your sentence is maybe eventually aiming to touch everybody or has something to tell to everybody, to everyone around the world. It's just an example. But I spent a lot of time uh, recently with the character Konstantin Levin in Anna Karenina because I really love the way he is at the same time very naive and very idealistic. He believes in human beauty, in human purity. And I just can't decide if he is just uh, an idiot or a Christ. And I work with him and there is something interesting in this conversation between Constantine Levin and me as a reader, as a simple reader. I think that every reader must start a conversation with characters. I believe strongly in characters. Yes. I know that some writers believe in structures or you know, that kind of in plots. Or As far as I'm concerned, I believe in characters first because I can talk to them, I can have their voice in my head and they are very real. It's a joy and a tremendous privilege to be able to sit and exchange with a marvelous young writer. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very, very honored. The honor is ours. Mbugar Sar, every good wish to you and your work and your life. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And uh, I hope all the readers from here will just uh, enjoy the book and find something in the energy I tried to put in the book and in every sentence. Energy, energy, energy. It leaps off the page. We're incredibly in your debt. <laughs> we'll see you again. See you soon. Thank you. Mohamed Mbougar Sarr won the Goncourt Prize in Paris for his novel, The Most Secret Memory of Men. It is available in the U.S. in English from other press. Here at Open Source, we depend on listener support. 
If you haven't made your contribution yet, please visit radioopensource.org slash donate and pitch in to keep the world's first and longest running podcast going strong. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-based collective of independent, creator-owned podcasts. Our shows cover everything from politics to art to history to technology, and we're united around the principle that independent voices are more important than ever. You can learn more at hubspokeaudio.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.